0: The question that was often asked was, why should a profit-making audit business be involved in a community and an island off the edge of an African country? What on earth has that got to do with the audit? And to which my answer was always, it's got everything to do with human dignity. And it may have nothing to do with audit, but it has to do with dignity. And by the way, we were able to audit the seaweed and the investment and the numbers of toilets and the growth of business and the bank that we helped set up. So If you think about it many ways round you can serve the potential of the poorest by applying your skills and that's what i try to do everywhere
1: traditional corporate practices got us to a life-threatening climate and unjust society changing this trajectory needs bold solutions from diverse thinkers Welcome to Impact Reimagined, the podcast that helps you discover and envision a future where humanity's greatest problems are solved. I am Dr. Noah Gaffney, Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation, and your host. he was a teenager, Lord Michael Hastings was asked what he wanted to do with his life. His answer, perhaps uncommon for a 16-year-old, was to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. Throughout his extensive career in education, government, broadcasting, business, and public service, Lord Hastings has stayed true to that purpose. In this episode, Lord Hastings talks about leading corporate responsibility efforts during a time when it wasn't commonplace for businesses to prioritize purpose. He shares how he advocated for KPMG to invest in the development of a marginalized community, pushing us to reflect on how corporations could similarly address poverty. In our conversation, we also tackle the most urgent threat to our existence, climate change. Lord Hastings and I talk about the need for a radical shift in the way companies and we as people engage with the environment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, particularly personally and professionally, the things that have led you to this life of purpose and impact?
0: Well, I'm always inclined to point at the wonder of my great mother and father. They were immensely interesting and purposeful people. My father born in Angola of Indian parentage my mother born in Jamaica of mixed Panamanian and sort of Ghanaian African parentage, both of them coming together in Jamaica where my father was a dental surgeon and then creating a life that they saw as public service orientated. So my father coming to the United Kingdom to work in the National Health Service and then before that, actually working to support the war effort at the tail end of the Second World War, very keen as a young dental surgeon to give the best of himself to make sure the nation could thrive in a difficult time. And what they both taught me in multiple examples was that the purpose of having money and life and facilities and opportunities is so you can share them, not so you can accrue them. And I learned from the earliest possible age that the best thing to do with what others may see as surplus to spend on yourself is actually facility to enable someone else to live. And to think in those very differentiated terms gave me a huge amount of early boost to then turn that into, when I got to a tender age of 16, asked by my very dear friend at school, what do you want to do with your life? I found a sentence of purpose because I'd been shown it. And my sentence of purpose at 16 was I want to speak up for the poor And I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. And for most 16-year-olds, that's not a usual question to ask. But for me, it was a usual question to answer because I'd heard so clearly the framework of commitment that I heard from my parents. I wanted to mirror it.
1: Lord Hastings began his career as a teacher. He moved into government service in 1986, supporting employment and development initiatives in Britain's inner cities. In 2003, he became the BBC's first head of corporate social responsibility.
0: So with the BBC, which is a public institution, both here in the United Kingdom, but also in terms of its world news and world service television and radio outputs, there was a very real sense in which the output was being orientated towards the public interest, but the internal behavior was being commercially focused, as in, how do we get the biggest audience, How do we make the thing sound the most jazzy? How do we give it extra edge and oomph? Now, you could just say, well, that's down to kind of broadcasting technique and style and creativity. Well, you could say that maybe people didn't have the sense of what the purpose was really all about. Probably one of the most important founders of the BBC, Lord Reith, said the purpose of the BBC was to inform, to educate and to entertain. And when I joined the BBC as its head of public affairs to champion its needs in parliament and to government it had really turned into entertain then inform then educate and it was the wrong way around so i set about attempting to persuade and with some reasonably good success the bbc that its duty was to see itself as a servant of the public interest and probably one of the boldest things we did in response to the then prime minister tony blair who'd initiated a commission on africa basically What should the new Africa look like? How should it be treated? How should it be invested in? How should it be resourced? In response to that, immediately on the tail end of his commission report being published, we held a massive 600-person conference in the heart of London with all the people from the EU and from commissioners responsible for investment across the continent and business executives and broadcast the whole thing live on the World Service in order to accentuate the BBC's commitment to international development, not just the reporting of issues, but rather the addressing of the systemic problems associated with those issues. And I was so proud of the BBC's annual events, Children in Need, Comic Relief, raising money from the public to support powerful intrusions into people's basic lives in the most positive way.
1: In 2005, Lord Hastings became an independent peer in the House of Lords, the second chamber of the UK Parliament. The House of Lords functions include making laws and investigating public policy. A year later, he began working for KPMG as global head of corporate citizenship. KPMG is a global network of accounting firms providing audit, tax, and advisory
0: services. KPMG, on the other hand, entirely a profit-driven organization, not producing any physical things, just using ideas and the power of the mind for audit, tax, and business services. So I wanted to help KPMG, under the full endorsement of its chairman and global chief executive, to focus its intellectual energy on transforming the prospects, the potential of the poorest people in the world. So we took on multiple commitments to community development in some of the most outlandishly faraway places you can imagine, because this was a global business.
1: In 2009, Lord Hastings learned of Pemba Island, a tiny African village off the edge of Tanzania that was experiencing extreme poverty. He was asked if KPMG could get involved in a project to support this community. Lord Hastings visited the village and was struck by what he experienced. The community desperately needed basic infrastructure for basic necessities. He saw people suffering from infectious disease and could even smell the lack of toilets and basic sanitation. When Lord Hastings went back to KPMG's board and asked them to invest in this community, some argued that there was no business case to pursue it.
0: The question that was often asked was, why should a profit-making audit business be involved in a community, an island off the edge of an African country? What on earth has that got to do with the audit? And to which my answer was always, it's got everything to do with human dignity.
1: Lord Hastings managed to convince them.
0: KPMG was willing to invest millions of dollars in a community of 10,000 people to give them everything from sanitation and water and electricity right the way through to creating a multi-million business enterprise, farming seaweed, banking and new housing, toilets for girls to be able to go to school, upping the level of girls. I was so proud of this. A Muslim community where there were less than 20% of the girls in education when we finished in... 2019, there were 80% of the girls in education, so proud of that, and providing maternal care so that no woman needed to give birth and die in childbirth or the child to die at the point of birth, supporting the basics so people had dignity, rebuilding houses, people had good places to live, and helping them farm and create enterprise.
1: The Millennium Village Project exceeded $2.2 million with investment in education, health, infrastructure, agriculture, and the environment. And despite the fact that profit was not the focus of the project, KPMG also ended up benefiting from it.
0: We were able to audit the seaweed and the investment and the numbers of toilets and the growth of business and the bank that we helped set up. So if you think about it many ways round, you can serve the potential of the poorest by applying your skills. And that's what I tried to do everywhere.
1: What if, just like KPMG, corporations helped pull people out of poverty while benefiting from the development of the communities they invested in? This mentality of possibility is what led Lord Hastings to exceed expectations when it came to corporate citizenship. Besides supporting the Millennium Village project, Lord Hastings also set out to reduce the company's negative carbon impacts during his time at KPMG.
0: My team was saying let's take it down we said hmm, first of all 20% no let's go to 25% and having said we'd go to 25% on a benchmark that we set ironically in 2010 when we got to the benchmark by the end of 2012 early 2013 we hadn't done 25% we'd done 29% because the minute you orientate people towards how to save energy in other words switch off things that don't need to be on Look at computer systems and amalgamate them, particularly servers, because servers like air conditioners are massive energy consumers. So pull the server systems together in such a way that you can use less energy because you need to keep them on for data transfer and data security. Look at the ability to switch on and off lighting within rooms. I mean, there were a number of times I was sitting in rooms just silently reading something and the lights would go off because I hadn't physically moved in the course of 20 minutes. Uh, and meetings would be like that sometimes. People are not being animated, so the lights would go off. But it was a good learning to everybody that actually you can do basic things that save energy. Companies can take active decisions to establish systems that save money and save energy and make us aware, make us very aware. And I do remember, too, when uh, we made a big move to getting rid of individual bins by everybody's desk because when you have a bin you tend to throw things in it. If you don't have a bin you have to think "Mm, do I really want to take the walk to where the refuse is let me not throw these things away. Let's move away from plastics and move towards more reusable and recyclable papers for cups and other products. We have to constantly keep thinking about how can we re-engineer our world to be and when I say sustainable I really mean survivable.
1: Hastings stepped down from KPMG in 2019. He is now the chairman of SOAS University in London and continues to serve in the House of Lords. He has also been involved in the criminal justice system for nearly 40 years. What I think is so fascinating about your work and your history of working with others is you've not just done that on a local level, leveraging the resources of large institutions. It's something you've been very committed to personally as well. I'm thinking of your chiefs of staff at the Houses of Parliament. I'm thinking of the various individuals that you mentor locally. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you balance that global and local and engage young people on their journeys?
0: Well, you know, yesterday is an interesting example. So um, yesterday I, I began the day with the governor in a men's prison in the southeast of London, and the opportunity to visit a couple of the wings and meet some of the men in the prison, the governor and the prison asking us. We already work in four prisons asking us to stretch ourselves to work in five. I then went on from there back home in order to conduct major interviews for a director position to the new National Institute of Teaching, which is a nationwide body formed by the UK government to change the status and importance of teacher development so that we can get stronger educational outcomes for our children, and then dash back into London again to meet someone who had come out of prison a good seven years ago, who's on the long journey of renewal in his life and had taken himself off to Peru for the summer to discover his soul and to find out at long last what his inner strengths are, having finally come to terms with not being ashamed of his past. My days are like that all the time. I can be in ceremonial in Parliament with the Queen, and then stepping out as she was, of course, and then future in the King, stepping out and then literally going to spend time with somebody who's struggling with a housing complexity or or an issue of debt and figuring out how we can support them to raise the level of financial awareness and dignity, but also help them to get equality of provision. My days are always layered. As chairman of a major university, we also spent time yesterday determining three new trustees, in fact, we decided on four, for our very powerful board of trustees delivering phenomenal education on the themes that affect Africa and the Orient and Southeast Asia. So how do you do it? Well, you do it when you're driven by your purpose. And if your purpose, as mine is, is to speak up for the poor and to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor, I only do those things that fit that purpose. And I won't do things that don't. So I have very little time for trivia, very little time for fun, <laughs> apart from great friends and, and the company of great friends. And also, you know, I love movies and all those kind of things, walking our dogs and so on. And my children are around and it's wonderful. But I would say life is about making sure other people get access to the benefits that I've so easily taken for granted.
1: For Lord Hastings, serving others also means taking care of our environment.
0: We're used to seeing wind farms now. We're used to seeing solar farms now. We're used to talking about hydrogen power. We're used to seeing electric vehicles. You only have to track back 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. We would all be wondering, what's that thing swirling around up there? But we're used to it now. So how do we get used to alternative energy sourcing, alternative energy saving? You know, I often say the, the most important thing you and I need to do As individuals is not just look to what companies will do to make our life remain easy. In other words, find convenient ways to be sustainable. But ask ourselves, how do we solve the problem of the fact that in the United States and here across Europe and especially in the UK, we waste 53% of all the food available to us when there are people in the world who can't even have 3% of the food that might be available to them? So we have to look at our own propensity to waste. We've got to look at our own propensity to consume and to spend and to throw away. We've moved into an era of cheap consumables, from clothing right the way through to white goods. We have to stop that. We have to learn how to keep things going as long as they possibly can and and then see them on the circular economy trick, which is just a great way of saying, I've used it well and you can use it too. I'm proud to say to people, really proud to say to people, I even did it last week, I poke my head in, I go into charity shops. And why do I, as a peer of the realm, and that to be perfectly honest, reasonably well-off individual, go and look in charity shops, it's not because I can't afford stuff, it's because I think things should be reused and recycled. And if I can buy things from a charity shop, I will, rather than go and buy new things. And we need to train the market to support us to reuse, to recycle, and to re-engineer.
1: This mentality shift also involves questioning the products we use and the companies that make them.
0: We also need at the same time to be very clear about our human rights responsibility. We're all deeply aware that we carry mobile phones with us the whole time, and we now see cars full of batteries. What people don't ask is what are the minerals that go in to make sure that the battery powerage is effective, and where does it come from? And it's still a problem that there is still child labor in places like the Congo, in the middle of Africa, supporting our ability to swap our phones every two years or to ditch our cars and just get one a little bit slicker and faster, and to have all the gizmos we want in our cars. This mindset has to change because our planet is boiling. We all saw it in the course of this last summer in the Northern Hemisphere, boiling, boiling, boiling. Devastation, destruction of life, floods, people losing out on the basic freedoms of dignity as a consequence of our excesses. So I think the innovations are partly in things that can be created but they're also in attitudes that we change.
1: So tell me, going forward, you know, having been a leader in this space for decades, what do you see as the next decade of impact?
0: Well, you know, we were on a good track, weren't we? World governments were on a good track, and then COVID came along, we all got knocked off course. And when you think about the sheer volume of plastics consumed from face masks right the way through to COVID tests, All the way through to the kit and gear that people in hospitals had to wear. I mean, we, we went backwards terribly in 2020 and 2021. And then, of course, now we've been hit by the Russia Ukraine crisis and we're back into coal extraction in some countries in Europe in order to provide basic electricity and power sourcing. And we're busy fracking and digging to get more oil and gas where we can possibly find it. So. There is a deep instability in the best of our plans. We don't know what tragedy is going to come and slap us. We don't know what it's going to require of us to try and stay on track for these climate goals. But there is one thing we can absolutely do without any doubt at all. You know, when we look at the images of world cities in April, May 2020, after there had been just a raft of lockdowns, the average energy consumption fall, as in pollutables into the atmosphere fall was between eight to ten percent per year. The impact of that on reduced climate was noticeable, but also was noticeable was the incredible cleanliness of the air in cities like Delhi and Beijing and London and Los Angeles and New York. And it did show, probably more clearly than ever, human behavior is what has got us into this situation. Human behavior can get us out of it.
1: If we are to hit the brakes on the climate crisis, we must also innovate.
0: We need to re-engineer our homes to protect the energy and heat inside or cool that we need inside. We need to think about how we do vehicle transportation in much more dynamic means. Magnetism is coming through on train services many parts of the world. Renewable energy is becoming so habitual now that we're used to it here in the UK, where over 43% of all our energy is from entirely renewable sources. And goodness me, a decade ago, we were looking in single figures. So can we get there? Can the US get there? Can Europe, can the big users get there? Yes, we can get there. We have to have the will to want to. And here's one of the most difficult things. I just lay it on the table. I realized that I shall be slaughtered for saying this by so many, especially in the United States, but let me say it, is our assumption of governments in the developed wealthy world is that every year there should be economic growth. It's a constant measure. We need to be growing, 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 growing. Well, that means we're consuming, 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 using, 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 ripping up the rainforests destroying them so that we can have yet more product for our short-term enjoyment, pushing constantly towards luxury products, which require the very destruction of the natural habitats to give us what we want. No, we shouldn't be making the case always for growth. We should be making the case for stability, sacrifice and service.
1: Despite how far we are from fully sustainable business practices, corporations have started to acknowledge that they must change the way they have traditionally worked.
0: I remember when I started my journey on this at the BBC and then KPMG, there were still skeptics around. I remember people who were unconvinced about climate change and thought that we were just kind of being a little bit awkward and unhelpful. Well, I don't think there's any sensible, serious business leader, executive politician who doesn't now see that we're witnessing literally a meltdown and the need to slap ourselves in the face and sit up and deal with these things in the most serious way. Yes, of course, aim to get for the lowest carbon infusion to our atmosphere possible, but create the technologies and facilities and vehicle processes to set us all continuing to be free and prosperous. And it's a business opportunity. People used to say, oh, all this corporate responsibility stuff and environmental stuff, do-goodism that costs us money. And now I'd say to them, no, this is life, essential life stuff that saves life and delivers profitability. Now that's a win-win.
1: Businesses are finally recognizing their responsibility in addressing issues like poverty and the climate crisis. Lord Hastings is one of those people who not only envision a better future, but also take decisive steps to make it a reality. I hope we were able to share key insights that you can bring to your own organization. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Impact Reimagined so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Impact Reimagined is produced by the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Rutgers, visit rixie.business.rutgers.edu.